And at this time, children can go to Children's Church. I still have to get in the routine of putting the uh, Children's Church slide up there. So they can head down there. A couple of things before we get going. I did find my Bible. Um, and guess where it was? It was on my desk. <laughs> now, that might be an indictment against the clutter of my desk or the size of the desk. I don't know which. But as Mark Twain once said, if a cluttered desk is a sign of a cluttered mind, then what is a sign of an empty desk? So that's, that's my defense of, of that um, accusation. Also, it's been an interesting week for me. I've had allergies and Friday and Saturday were especially rough to the point to where my wife was insistent that I was sick, but I am insistent it's just allergies, um, and the debate still rages on. Uh, however, this morning I do feel quite a bit better, uh, not 100%, but still quite a bit better. Um, I think if it was a cold, it would be a different story, but that's just my uh, point of view there. My wife has a totally different view on that. Now, for those who have uh, children in Children's Church, Um, One thing you should know, we have these, uh, part of the curriculum is this studying the Bible thing. It's kind of like the worksheet they work through. Um, And they they should be taking these home with them. So ask your child about it because in here um, it has questions as to what they covered over the lesson. Um, It has passages to go over throughout the week for each day of the week and questions to ask about that passage. Um, And so like this week they're focusing on um, how to study God's, uh, God's word uh, through inductive Bible study, to observe, interpret, and apply. Um, and so it has things in there to help you um, engage in your child in this. Because remember, our youth ministry isn't meant to replace your God-ordained responsibility to raise up your kids. Um, it exists to equip and to complement um, that responsibility. So this is just one of the tools you can use, and we would encourage you to do that. And uh, hopefully on Facebook, uh, maybe we'll get something like a daily reminder with the verse and the questions to help further um, engage um, you all and, and your children uh, during the week. Now, last week we saw the religious authorities question the authority of Jesus. Jesus responded by asking them um, where they thought the authority came from for the ministry of John the Baptist. Did it come from man or did it come from heaven? And their refusal to answer opened the door to expose their hypocrisy and their actual intent. And in doing so, he followed it up by telling him two parables, as you recall, one about the two sons and the one about the tenants. And in both, Jesus made it clear that it would be the tax collector and the prostitutes who go into the kingdom of heaven before them. And what they, the religious elite, thought they had rights to would be taken from them. And the very stone that these religious authorities reject would become the cornerstone, and upon that stone, they would be crushed and broken. Well, today, at the start of Matthew 22, uh, we are going to read the third parable that Jesus uses in the response. So as we look at this parable, we have to look at it in the context in which we find it, and it follows these two parables that we discussed last week. We will look at two groups of people in this parable, those who are closest to the king in the parable, and those who are farthest from the king in the parable. Then we are going to look at how regardless of where your proximity is to the king, where you presume you stand with him, there's only one appropriate response you ought to have with the king. And so if you would just go ahead and turn to Matthew 22, and we are going to read verses 1 through 14. If you need a Bible, there should be be one near you under the seat. Matthew 22, 
Again, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, or some translations will have it, slaves, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your grace and mercy to allow us to gather as one. We ask that your spirit will teach us and instruct us through your teaching, that we will humbly submit ourselves to your authority, rejoice in the grace that exists there, along with the mercy and the forgiveness of sins. Help us confess those sins, help us repent of those sins, and help us continue to mature and grow in the truth through your word and your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the spirit. And we ask all this, Father, for your glory. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to clarify just one interpretive issue here um, with this text. Uh, some see this text as a prophetic um, proclamation by Jesus about the judgment on Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem when the Romans come and sack the city um, in 70 AD. Um, and some see those in the main streets as, as Gentiles. Now, to be clear, I do not see that, and let me explain that real quickly. I think the parable, with the context that we find it in, with the other two parables, the other group isn't Gentiles. It's actually Jewish tax collectors and Jewish prostitutes. Now, it could include some Gentiles, but it's not Gentiles specifically. So I do not see this as a proclamation of the, the message going from the Jews explicitly to the Gentiles. And for this reason, one, by the time Jerusalem gets sacked by the Romans in 70 AD, the Gentile ministry was already in full flame. So the order isn't there. Um, two, because of the context, as I just mentioned. And when the Romans come and sack Jerusalem, they don't burn the whole city. They, they burn the temple and the portions are around it. So in this parable, it, the whole city gets burned, but it's, you know, again, it's just a, a parable. So I, I don't think you can look at this and say this deals primarily with the prophecy of Jerusalem being sacked by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, granted, the word of God is steep. And perhaps it's an indirect connection there. I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. But I don't think it's the main thrust, nor do I think it's the purpose Jesus gave us the parable. I think the purpose that Jesus gave us the parable, based off of the context and what I will go over, um, I think that is the purpose. So let's get into this uh, parable, and we're going to consider 
the first group that's closest to the king. And they are the closest to the king because the king knows them. After all, they were on his invitation list to this banquet. The second group had to be found, and they had no business with the king. So that's why we consider them to be the furthest from the king, and we'll talk about more on that when we get to them. So those closest in verses 1 through 7, these are the ones who have been invited to the king's wedding banquet for his son. And this is a celebration that probably would have had multiple components to it. It wasn't just dinner. It's probably breakfast, uh, probably several days long. And if you've been paying attention to the previous parables in Matthew, especially the two that follow uh, previous to this, and the ones that include who the king is or who the master is, that helps us understand who's who in this parable. Right? In the parable of the tenants, the master was God. Right? And the son of the master is Jesus, and the slaves or the servants he sent were the prophets. We have similar characters in this parable. So here we have the king who is the father, and the son is Jesus Christ, of course, who the wedding banquet is for. So again, always look to Scripture to interpret Scripture, especially when it comes to the parables of Jesus. So those who the king has invited to the banquet, they have known about the banquet for some time. See, when people get invited to something, especially in the first century when there were no clocks and watches and so forth, you couldn't go to them and say, hey, the banquet's going to be on the 3rd of April at 3 p.m., please come, and you just leave it. No, it was the king's going to be throwing a banquet for his son soon. And then later, the king's banquet's ready for you to come because you, you did at least two invitations, one to prepare the person Say, hey, you've been invited. And the second one to say, it's ready. And you also did that because you want to make sure that the right people got invited. So if you didn't get a second invitation, you probably weren't supposed to get the first invitation to begin with. And this prevented embarrassments and uh, dishonoring people and uh, just mistakes that could cause some animosity and, and so forth. So these people who are being invited... They had the heads up. They knew beforehand. And just real quick here, an interesting thing here, a key word in this parable um, is, in the Greek is kaleo, and that just means to call, to invite, to summon. It's all throughout this parable. So anytime you see the word call, invite, or summon, depending on how your translation has it, it's the same word in the Greek. So like in verse 3, it, it could literally read, to invite those who have been invited. And then in the last verse uh, where it ends um, in verse 14 where it says, for many are called but few are chosen, that could say for many are invited but few are chosen. And I think that can kind of help us kind of pick up what is meant uh, by that verse. But that's just, that's the key word is that all are invited but not everyone's chosen. So just think about that as we go through here. So, He's, the king sends his servants. At first, the people who are invited on the invitation list, they ignore them. They're, just, they're apathetic. Nothing worse in the church than apathy. And these people, they're apathetic. But the king, in his great patience, right? He's like, okay, fine. Tell them what I, I have prepared. Tell them what I have. I'm going to be patient with them. I'm the king. Though they ignore the king, I'm going to be patient. Tell them I have my fattest calves have been slaughtered. My best oxen is ready. That steak is on the grill. You can smell it. It's good. Come. But these people, who apparently are close to the king, still don't care. They continue in their apathy. And in Luke's account of this parable, they make excuses. And Matthew doesn't list those excuses, but their responses kind of speak for themselves. 
One goes back to his farm that he's tending. The other one goes on about his business. And the rest respond with hostility. They, they go a step further beyond apathy. They mistreat the slaves and even kill some. Refusing a king's invite is akin to refusing to obey a king's command. I mean, the king, the person in charge of all things, is saying, I want you to come. You just don't say no. It's the king, the one who can have your head. Let alone, you don't respond with hostility, but that's exactly what these people are doing. So the response to the king shouldn't surprise us. In fact, it wouldn't surprise the, the Pharisees, because remember, in the previous parable, Jesus asks them, how should the master respond to these tenants who mistreated the slaves and the king and his, his son? And they're like, well, he should kill them, should execute them, should do away with them. And that's exactly what this king does here. I mean, he does more than that. He burns the city, the very fields that they were tending to, the very businesses that they had to tend to rather than the king's business. It was taken from them. What they thought they had, even that was taken from them. So he sends his troops, he does all this, he acts on his justice and the full right that the king has. See, the people fail to realize the very things that they enjoyed, that they were using as an excuse to not go to the king's banquet. Ultimately, all that was the king's to begin with. But yet they ignored the king's. And so the king acted on that. But now the king has no one to come to his banquet. And that must not be so. The king must not be left dishonored and disgraced by having an empty wedding banquet for his son. So he looks elsewhere. And he looks to those who many would consider to be the furthest away, the farthest away from the king. So the king sends his people once again, and now he sends them to the main streets of the city, those streets who are, uh, make the way out of the city, the outroads. And this is where people would gather to do business and uh, where the prostitutes would gather to sell themselves. Tax collectors would gather to catch the people to collect the money that's owed. And so this is where they go. And they find people. And they just don't find like any particular people. It's not like they were going through and they were doing like a casting event for this wedding banquet. They were finding anyone and all who would accept the king's invitation and go to the banquet. They found the good and the bad. There was no worthiness. Who, what you did or what you've done had no standing in the matter. See, the worthiness of a person is now found in the response to the king's request. The king has extended you the invitation, and you were found worthy if you said, yes, that was it. And this is just like our worthiness before God is not founded on our works or good deeds, but in our response to the proclamation of the gospel where he invites us to his table. This is kind of what we uh, engage in when we do communion. It's what we're anticipating, right? The wedding feast when Jesus Christ returns. So as such, people all across society, um, regardless of the societal rank and approval, they are welcomed to the banquet. But who might these people be? According to the text, who specifically are these people? They're not just anyone. The the text has a, a certain group in mind. And it's not just for us to throw in there who we think it could be. But there is a group that I think Matthew has in mind, that Jesus have, have, has in mind. And we've spoken of this group, again, using the context. If we recall the first two parables, the previous two parables we talked about last week, we have two distinct groups, right? And they're, they're represented in each way. We have the chief priests, 
and the religious authorities, which uh, are represented by the second son in that first parable, who professed obedience but denied it by, by his actions. And then they're also represented in the parable of the tenants as the original group of tenants who were given the vineyard, the land of Israel, who when the time for the harvest came, for the fruit, they abused and killed the prophets of God and eventually killed his son. Thus they lose the ownership of the land and they get slaughtered for their insolence. So this second group, let me see here. So once again, we, with these two groups, we have this first group is this religious authority, right? They, they sound like the second son. They sound like the original tenants of the vineyard. And this first group, without a doubt, represents the religious authorities, those who have been riding on the coattails of Abraham, Moses, and the prophets, right? They have just been riding on all the hard work and the prophets that they've killed. They're just, they're just there, and they take that for granted because now the king has sent his son, and there's an invitation, and yet they refuse to believe. They, believe, they refuse to believe John the Baptist, and now they refuse to believe the son Jesus. And since they refuse to believe, God's going to look to others, and this others is this second group, these others that were invited. So the second group, when we look at the previous parables, they represent the antithesis of this first group. This is the group that in the eyes of Jewish culture would be considered unclean and unworthy of God's time. This is the group that Jesus explicitly mentions in both of the other two parables, tax collectors and prostitutes, right? They're mentioned at Tax collectors and prostitutes are represented by the first son who said, I will not, but eventually repented, changed his mind, did the will of the father, and they're represented um, as the second group of tenants, the parable of tenants, and, and when Jesus says, they will go into the kingdom before you. He specifically names them. Therefore, this group, this group that they find on, on the streets, I believe are tax collectors and prostitutes as well as the blind and the lame, those whom Jesus healed after he cleared out the temple courts in Matthew 21. He cleared it out, and he brought in, the, in, the, in the court of Gentiles, the blind and the lame, and he healed them. Remember those, remember the, the Pharisees and the religious authorities, their picture of the Messiah was somebody who's going to come in and purge Israel of all those who were considered unclean. That includes the, 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 the lame and the blind, Gentiles, uh, prostitutes, and tax collectors, but he does the opposite, and he invites them into the temple court. So that's this second group. This is those who Jews would look at and would be like, there's no way these, these people are being invited to the wedding banquet, let alone the kingdom of God. This is like those two blind men um, calling out son of David and the crowd which included the disciples, rebukes them. Because why would the son of David, the future king of, of Israel, have any business to do with two blind men? But that is his business, right? To serve and not to be served. And that's the foolishness of the gospel, though. That God, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the holy of holies, the all-perfect and all-righteous one, would invite those who are the exact opposite of that to his very table those who are clearly covered in the filth of their own sin. I mean, it's like going to the pig pit where the pigs do their business and eat and they play in that pit. It's nasty, but that's exactly where the Lord goes to find those who are going to sit at his table. 
These are those who at one time preferred their own unrighteousness over God's. Those who sought to satisfy their lustful desires in ungodly ways. Those who sought to worship the created rather than the creator. These are idolaters. These are us. But again, whether they are good or bad, that's not the issue. But whether they acknowledge the king's request and accept it. And they do, of course. I mean, right, you're in this position, and then all of a sudden, the king comes and says, hey, come to my banquet. He has food prepared that they probably have never eaten before, never smelled, never seen. It's going to be in a palace that they have no business being in, and perhaps that's why they accept it, because they recognize, I have no reason to be here. I'm going to take advantage of this. This is wonderful. This is great. This is similar to Luke's parable where you have the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee gives a a prayer that's rooted in arrogance. It says, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But then you have the tax collector who's praying one that's formed in confessional humility, recognizing their own sin, and that they don't deserve the grace of God or forgiveness. Yet hearing the invite, though, this is the kicker. We've got to pay attention here. Hearing the invite, accepting the invite, by walking to the banquet, by being in the palace, it's still not enough. Just like hearing the gospel, accepting the gospel by saying a prayer or walking the aisle is not enough. There is an unexpected response. And we see this in verses 11 through 14. See, all these people who have been invited and have accepted the call, they're in the banquet and they're, about, they're, they're there. They've been there. We don't know how long, but the king comes in to see who all is there, checks out the situation. And he notices a person, a particular person. This person's not wearing the appropriate garment. He doesn't have the wedding attire that he's supposed to have on, and he sticks out like a sore thumb. And when the king asks him, why don't you have the clothes that you're supposed to be wearing? What does the man say? Nothing. Because he doesn't have a reason. He doesn't have an excuse. He's silent. And so the king has him tied and bound, tied and bound perhaps so that he wouldn't come back in to keep him outside. Like, I'm pretty sure the king has men who could have escorted this man outside of the place without tying and and binding him. But he's tied and bound to keep him from coming back in. So they tie him, bound him. It might be easier to throw him too. And they cast him out. And where do they cast him out? In the outer darkness. Not just like the inner darkness, but the outer darkness. And it's not like it's just dark. It's uncomfortable, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this is a, 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 one of the many descriptors that we have of hell. And this is a judgment from the king on the man. Now, you might be thinking, man, isn't that a little harsh? Dude, just to have the right clothes. Like, I might have a hard time deciding what to wear to a wedding. I don't get thrown out for that. And you might maybe think, well, maybe he couldn't afford the clothes. Well, none of that that's, is the case because the man himself was silent. He had no explanation. He didn't say, well, the clothes that you provided didn't fit me or I didn't have the money to afford what you didn't want to wear. And, and back then in the first century, it was common for kings when they threw big feasts or whoever was throwing a big wedding celebration often would provide the attire to their guests. So it was often the provision was on the king. And even if it wasn't, provision could be made. But apparently this man made no attempt at any of that, probably because he knew he didn't belong. 
So don't look at this man and be like, oh man, this is too harsh. The man himself knew that he was guilty. He was silenced. So the question, this is the obvious question, this question's been wrestled with by commentators for centuries. What does this garment, or lack thereof one, ultimately represent? What does this mean? And there have been volumes written on this, exactly what the garment can represent. But there is a common view, and one is the imputed righteousness of Christ. But I think that's common because it's really narrow and specific. And I think ultimately that's not even Jesus' main point. I think it's too specific, too narrow. I think it's part of the answer, absolutely. But I don't think it's the whole answer. Right? And when I talk about the, uh, the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us, I'm talking about the righteousness of Christ being given to us to cover our sins that mark us worthy at sitting at the table. But again, I think that's too narrow. Uh, there is a clear principle here, which I think is clear in the text, that I want to bring out that we can still apply to our scripture. And I think this is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach. And I think the rest of scripture affirms this as well. When the king shows you such kindness, you humble yourself before him, right? You humble yourself fully before him. When you become aware of the king's expectations to be invited to such a joyous, glorious event, you do all that you can to meet those expectations, recognizing that the king will provide what you need and you don't presume anything. But that's exactly what this man did. He presumed he could accept the invitation and do what he wanted. More specifically for us, when we see what the gospel brings us and how we are invited into the presence of the eternal creator for all eternity, we humble ourselves and live as he calls us to live. We just don't go around living as we want to, thinking I've accepted the call, he invited me, it's great, and wearing what you want to wear. We have to change our clothes. So in 1 John, 1 John will help us in this. Again, I find myself coming back to 1 John often as I go through the teachings of Jesus, but I think that's appropriate. 1 John was written by the beloved disciple. He knew Jesus well, and of course he writes a short epistle that really clarifies what Jesus means by what it looks like to be a believer and to walk in that truth. So 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 6. John writes, now this is the gospel message we have heard from him and announced to you. Him is Jesus Christ. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God, that's him, and yet keep on walking in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he, that's God himself, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's like the garments. The garment, that's the garment that covers us. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving others and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, the need for that garment, if we confess that need, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Now, by this, we know that we have come to know God. If we keep his commandments. 
The one who says, I have come to know God and yet does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in such a person. It's like somebody coming to know the invitation to the banquet and showing up but not dressing like they're supposed to. They didn't know the rules and stipulations associated with that invitation. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he resides in God ought himself to walk just as Jesus walked. So God himself removes our sin. Our walking in the light and our awareness of our sin does not prevent us from our fellowship with him. All right? Clearly, as we are called to walk in light, right now we struggle with that, right? One moment we do dark things, another moment we do things in the light and we're not glorified yet. We haven't been perfected yet, so we still struggle with that. But that does not prevent our fellowship with him because he is light with no darkness. And there is no darkness in him, period. The blood of his son cleanses us from all of our sins. That's an ongoing deal in all of our unrighteousness. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is such a key verse there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And then later, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So he's saying, be in fellowship, don't sin, but if you do, we have an advocate. You can change your clothes still. Jesus Christ will give you new clothes with his blood. People who know Jesus and embrace Jesus, they do not look the same as they did before. Right? These tax collectors and prostitutes, this is who Jesus hung out with. That's what they did. But after they came to know Jesus and follow Jesus, they weren't prostitutes anymore. And if they were tax collectors, they were faithful, good tax collectors, not taking advantage of the countrymen or taking advantage of their position. They were paying back, right? We see that with uh, Zacchaeus when he pays back what he took. We see repentance. Those who are invited by the king to the wedding banquet do not look the same way as they did on the street when they show up to the banquet. The king gives them new clothes, new things to wear. They look different. And as they're walking to the banquet, people should be saying, John, is that you? And John's like, yeah, it's me. He's like, where'd you get those clothes? I didn't know you could wear that or whatever it is. Like, yeah, man, the king gave it to me. Why? what did you do? Nothing. It's just good, kind, graceful king. Like that's what it looks like. But if you say you walk into the bank and you look just like you did on the corner of the street, no one's going to believe you because you don't look like you're going to some king's banquet. You look like you're going to the bar like you did the other night or at the movie theater, or whatever it is. You look like you always have. So why should I believe you that you got a wedding banquet that you're going to when you're wearing the same clothes? So we have to change our clothes. We must not think that simply professing with our mouths, even with our prayers, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, yet not look any different. That goes against all of Scripture. Hence the need. We must change our clothes. Our behaviors, our habits, the very words we speak, even our sense of humor must be changed. Not that we lose our sense of humor. We need to keep that. We glorify God with humorous things as well. But even that must be changed. All of it, all of us, must be sanctified by the light of truth and grace so that we can enjoy that light for all of eternity. You don't get anywhere in Scripture even a hint of this, that God is okay with you being you or staying the same. 
or that since he loves you so much, he'll accept you the way you are. We don't see that in Scripture at all, unless you take words out and twist it and give new definition to, to words if you, just, if you just ignore how to read a book. See, God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. But when, that's, when his son, when Jesus Christ died for us, it wasn't just to die for us. It, he died to free us from the power of sin. Romans 6, right? He died to free us from the power of sin so that we no longer live in sin. Why? Because he's light. And in light, there's no darkness. So if we have fellowship with him, there should be no darkness in us as well. In other words, Jesus died in part so that you no longer will keep living the way that you've been living because we cannot live the way that God wants us to live in order for us to have that fellowship with him that God so desperately desires that we have with him. When we come to Christ, we don't get heaven, we get God. Heaven comes with God, but it's not like, oh, I get to go to heaven and be with my parents. It's not why... we need to stop asking the question, do you, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? The question is, do you know God? Do you want to know God? It's, it's about, because if you don't want God, you don't want to go to heaven. We want God. It's who we want because he's true. He is righteous. He is perfect. He's the creator. We don't, it's not heaven that we're after. And it's not hell that we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid eternity apart from God. Now, granted, hell is going to be horrible and you should want to avoid it. But ultimately, we want God, and it's God who we should be after. And Jesus, because he died, we're given the grace and power of the Spirit that changes our clothes, changes our hearts, takes this heart of stone and gives us a new heart. This is how you get abundant life, not through prosperity, not through blessings. It's by knowing God. It is not free of hardships or trials, as we just sang, Christ is mine forevermore. Days are numbered. You're going to be hated. It's going to be hard but his love is our reward. And this is the joy that we find by being in the presence of God, this fellowship. By being in the presence of God, you have to be walking in light, as John just told us in First John. And you enjoy this because you are dressed with the clothes of righteousness of Christ and the light that comes from the Father, as it is evidenced by your faith in your obedience to him. So there's no room for the practicing adulterer to say, God loves me, therefore I am accepted. That's exactly what this man said. The king invited me. The king wanted me here. So I'm accepted. I can go as I want. I know the king said that part, but I have the invitation. There's no truth in that. And it doesn't even make any sense. I mean, the, the, the person himself knew when he's confronted by the king, which all of us will be confronted by the king one day, he was silent because he had no excuse. All are invited. All are called, but few are chosen. And the man accepted. He received the invitation, accepted the king's grace, but did his own thing and as such was thrown out. You cannot hear the gospel, say you accept it, and keep on living as a sinner because I don't think you heard the right gospel. You didn't recognize it, what you were saved from and what you are saved to. And you can't do that and continue practicing darkness. First John is clear on that. You do that, you will only end up outside of the kingdom. You will show up to the gates of the wedding banquet and Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. doesn't matter how many times. This is Matthew 7. You said, Lord, Lord. doesn't matter what you've done. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't know a walk in the light, you, he will 
ask you to depart from him for all eternity. And we, the church, we have to be on guard even today against such people. For even now they sneak into the church, though they do not belong. Jude warns us of this in Jude 4. Jude writes, For certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who long ago were marked out for the condemnation I am about to describe, ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, men who have used the grace of God for a license to sin. Just look around in society, look around in the church today and just think of how often people say, God loves me still. Don't judge because God's grace is great and they use it for a license to sin. John is clear. Jesus is clear. Jude is clear. You can't do that. And these people will be judged accordingly. Some people like the savior aspect of Jesus Christ, but the fact that he's Lord, they completely ignore And you cannot separate those two. The beautiful thing is, though, and and let me just, real quick, this is why, this is in part why we here at Hope, we do membership, right? It's a byproduct of today's society and with with how people are constantly going. See, we don't live next to each other. We don't live day-to-day with each other, right? So I can't look at your life day-to-day and say, yes, you're a believer and so forth. So we have membership and we have expectations on those membership and interviews we have a process for that to vet who we are to help prevent jude 4 from happening that's in part why we do the membership process and it helps you out because it's a discipleship opportunity as well this i think that allows the church to be faithful in that regard now the beautiful thing is though if you struggle with obedience you can go to him You can go to the king. You can go to the father and let him know that you struggle, that you don't have the garment, that you don't know what to wear. You don't, like, thank you for inviting me. What should I wear? The invitation, when when your servant came to me and gave me the invitation, they didn't mention what I was supposed to wear. Do you have anything that could tell me why I need to wear? Yeah, here's a book. It's going to tell you what to wear. And here's other people who know what to wear and are actually wearing the clothes. See this person? Go to him. He's wearing the clothes that you need to wear. He'll tell you how to put it on. He'll tell you how to wear it and and how to clean it and and so forth. That's discipleship. So we can go to this king. We can go to our great high priest, as Hebrews 4, 15, 16 tells us. We can ask for that provision, for that help. He wants you to. James 1, 6. If if you lack wisdom, go to him. I think 1, 6 is the correct one. It's in there. Give or take. You can go, go there. Ask for wisdom, and he'll give it to you without rebuke. We have no reason ever. And we'll, it's, it's interesting because we'll talk about the parable of the talents. There's a man who thought God was a harsh man, therefore held on to, to what God gave him. And God's response to him, oh, you thought I was a harsh man, did you? Your words are going to condemn you. Let us not be that man and think that we can't go to God, think that he's a harsh man, and he's going to judge us and make us feel guilty. That's what the devil wants you to think. Go to God, recognizing he's full of grace, mercy, and that the blood of his son is there and covers us, and he wants us to be ready for the banquet because he wants, us, he wants his hall to be full of all those who are chosen. So hear and heed the invitation of God. Accept it and do what you must to change your clothes. I'll close with Paul's words. 
In Philippians 2, 12, 16, after he talks about how Jesus Christ came down from heaven and took on human flesh, he writes, So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. There's a hint of striving there. But notice this. For the one bringing forth in you the desire and the effort. See, we, we struggle to obey, but the desire and the effort to do so is provided by the king himself, by the Holy Spirit. That's good. And it's for the sake of his good pleasure. And Paul tells us who is God. The one is God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be plain, blameless and pure. Children of God, without blemish, darkness, you know, you can put that in there. Though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world by holding on to the word of life, which is the word of God, so that on the day of Christ, I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. This is why I harp on the word of God so much. This is what helps you shine like a light, right? My main concern every Sunday is that you hear the truth of God through his word, not my opinions, not that your feelings get patted on. I'm not worried about your self-esteem as much as it is. I'm, I'm more concerned. Have you heard the truth of God proclaimed? Do you understand it? Do you know how to apply it to your life? And I do my best to do that with gentleness as much as possible. And that's why, like today, we're going to be talking about the authority of scripture in our Sunday school class because that's the foundation of all of our beliefs and why we live the way we live. And I think that's incredibly important, not just only in the world today, but in the church today um, in America. But let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the invitation. Though I came at a high cost, your son, we thank you for his obedience, his willingness. We recognize that as he has invited us to come to this banquet, it cost him his own life, that he has suffered the wrath due for us. Help us recognize the immensity of this grace, this mercy that's extended to us. Help us see the holiness that we are asked to come into the glory of your kingdom, the glory of who you are, just how unworthy, how disconnected, how far away from that we are, even on our best of bestest days, even in our brief moments. Help us recognize just how dark we are apart from you and just how pure and true that light is that you send to us. We thank you for that. Help us walk in that. Help us wake up every morning seeking that light, seeking to walk in that light. And help us hear your word daily. Help us meditate on it day and night so that even when the darkness comes, we have the confidence that we are walking in the light. Help us change our clothes as you change our hearts. Help us be willing to ask for help First from you and then from our brothers and sisters in Christ who also struggle and who also need help. Help us be there for one another. Help us find those out there in West Salem who are wandering the streets, who are lost, whom you have invited. Help us find them, extend the invitation to them, and help us teach them what they ought to wear, how they ought to look, how they ought to 
live and what a life in the light and what a, an abundant life looks like, Father. But it has to be true in our hearts first before we can share it. And so we submit ourselves before you. Make our sins known. Help us confess our sins. Help us mourn over our sins. And if we struggle to mourn over our sins, Father, help us have that heart. Give us, give us that sensitivity to it. Give us that feeling that we need to recognize the evil and the wickedness that we have done, the transgression that we have committed. We are incapable people apart from you, Father. We just ask that you will complete us, grow us, mature us in your truth and help us stand fast upon your word by the grace of the Holy Spirit, by the grace and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory. Amen.